0: It really is. I, um, I never get tired of sharing the background of It Is Well. Uh, partly two reasons why. Because when I first shared it, I mispronounced the author's name. I said Tito. And it was a youth group in Toledo, Ohio, as I was serving as a youth director there. And one of the students said, or Horatio. I said, if you want to pronounce it correctly. Um, that song was written by a gentleman by the name of Horatio Spafford. Um, And he wrote that song in the midst of great tragedy. He stayed in the United States while his wife and children went to England. And on the journey to England, the ship that they were on uh, sank. And their children drowned, but Horatio's wife survived and made it to England. And he boarded a ship to go and get her and bring her back to the States. And while sailing almost over the spot where that ship that carried his wife and children, which now laid at the bottom of the sea, with the bodies of his children most likely still in it, he penned the words to this song, It Is Well With My Soul. That's an amazing testament. It's an amazing testament. I wish I could say that it ended well. It didn't end well for Horatio. He never could fully recover from the loss of his children. But nonetheless, to write that song in the midst of great tragedy, a beautiful song to say, It is well with my soul, that is only God at work, in my opinion, to cause, to empower, to lead someone to write a song like that. So I just, every time I think of that song, I rem- I'm just reminded of the genesis of it. And it's just beautiful even more to me so I hope it is to you as well. Um, that's not what I'm going to talk about today. I have good news I want to start out with, so I'm going to change gears. I have good news for, for, for today. Um, a recent survey of evangelical people, of evangelical Protestants, a recent survey found that only 10% of them wanted shorter sermons. <laughs> only 10% of them wanted shorter sermons. And not only that, Uh, It also found that the majority of them wanted more teaching. So, brothers and sisters, your wish is granted. I said it was good news. I didn't say it was good news for you. Okay? It's good news for me. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm encouraged, honestly. I I don't know if it's true or not. The surveys and polls and all that kind of stuff, who knows how accurate they are. There's always a margin of error. I doubt the margin of error is 90% plus or minus. Uh, but nonetheless, I think I'm encouraged that people want to hear more teaching and want more longer sermons. At least that's what I'm hearing. That's just my bias. Anyways, that being the case, uh, we have been making our way through a series called Reconciled in Christ and with each other. That's been our series for the past several weeks as we, as we have started off our year of 2022. And through a series of messages given by Pastor Weezy, Pastor Eric, and then also last week by Pastor Miles Larson, which, by the way, if you didn't hear that sermon or see that service, I'd encourage you to go back. Um, it, I think Miles just did a really phenomenal job laying out what a healthy church can look like, and so I'd encourage you all to take a look at that. But what we have been doing—well, really, all of them—I haven't been preaching for the past three weeks, if you haven't noticed. Um, But I'm preaching now. I mean, if you're wondering what you're paying me for, it's okay. You're allowed to have those questions. Certainly you are. Um, I hopefully will make it up in the next five weeks as I'm preaching. So the next five weeks are on me. Um, And so, uh, anyways, um, is that we have been kind of laying the groundwork, if you will. Plowing the ground, you know, cultivating it, getting it ready for what we will hope that we will experience tonight. Tonight in our repentance and restoration service. And that is really what we have been trying to do, but more than that, cultivating the ground, so not just that leads up to this service tonight, but also going forward as a church family in the days, weeks, months, and even years ahead. So we've been trying to be very intentional about how it is that we want to help prepare all of us for what we hope will happen this evening but not only that, for what we hope will stay with us long after this evening has passed. And so that's what we have been working towards here. And so this morning, I am also in that same vein, going to press in even further into this, hopefully cultivating the ground even further. And not only that, in addition to what has already happened, planting even some additional seeds, if you will, into this, into this ground that hopefully will yield some wonderful fruit Um, And that is, I want to continue to press in even further, and today I want to talk about what it takes to reconcile. What it takes to reconcile. Now, I I want to say this, um, I believe that there is nothing more powerful in the gospel message. And remember, the gospel message is simply this, Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus won. W-O-N, not... O-N-E, right? Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus won. And that's the gospel message in a nutshell. It's all about Jesus. I I sometimes think that we mess it up and it's about us. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the good news. We are not the good news. We receive the good news, but he is the good news, okay? It's all about Jesus. And what is so powerful about the gospel, in the way that it plays itself out, perhaps more powerfully than any other evidence of the power of the gospel, is reconciliation. Reconciliation. In other words, the fracturing of a relationship. In this case, specifically, our fracturing of our relationship with God the Father, which happened when sin entered humanity, when sin entered God's creation, when sin entered our world, At the time of Adam and Eve, and even after the flood, could not fully stamp it out. Could not fully get rid of it. That there is, in every single one of us, we are born into a relationship that's already fractured between us and God the Father. We may not even realize it, but the minute we are brought into this world, we are brought into a fractured relationship. That is our standing. Our posture before the Father when we are born, is that of separation. It's what it is. It's devastating. Absolutely devastating how much sin corrupted everything that God had desired for us. And not only that, it speaks, in my opinion, of God's great love to allow us to have the choice to actually allow sin to come in. That He didn't force us in any way, to love him. Because honestly, anything that is forced is really not love. Amen? If you and I have no choice in whether or not to enter into a relationship, that isn't love. No matter how much we might want to flower it up that way or dress it up in a way that says this is love, it is not love. Love has to have a choice of not to love. That is love. Or a hugely important aspect of it. And so there is, in my opinion, absolutely the, probably the greatest picture of the gospel is the fact that a relationship that was once fractured is now made whole once again. That's, in my opinion, the power of the gospel. And, and let me take it a step further. And that is, in the church, and I'm talking big C church, but I also want to talk about this church as well, there is no powerful representation of the gospel message, in my opinion, than to see fractured relationships once again be reconciled and be made whole once again. And let me even go a step further and say this. If we cannot reconcile in the church, whether it's here at Summit Ridge or in the Big C Church around the world, there is truly no hope for this world. None. None. And I believe that with all of my heart. If we can't be reconciled, with God the Father, and with each other, how in the world can we ever expect the world, the rest of the world, to be reconciled with each other and with God the Father? There is, in my opinion, no greater hope in humanity than the, than the opportunity, than the absolute prospect, if you will, the potential of us to be reconciled with God the Father, and in addition to that, to be reconciled with one another. Okay? Are you with me? In fact, I think the Apostle Paul expresses this so much, and the importance of this, he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17-19. I don't have the words on the screen, but I want you to listen to it. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come." Now, all these things are from God, and here it comes, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and guess what, brothers and sisters, Paul writes this, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's our ministry. Our ministry is reconciliation. If you want to know what your purpose in life is as a follower of Jesus, It's reconciliation. Help to bring it about. Ministry of reconciliation. And it goes on and says this. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their wrongdoing against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's the gospel. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus won. This is how important this is, brothers and sisters, for us to understand the importance of reconciliation. Not only is it the hope of the world, but more than that, it is our one-aim-purpose ministry for every single one of us as Christ followers. Are you with me? Do you agree with me? Actually, that's a wrong question. It doesn't matter. That's what the Bible says. Right? (laughs) Right? I mean, there are just some things you don't have to agree with me. You can say, "Dan, I don't agree with you." That's fine. You're wrong, but you can say that. Um, sometimes it's really good to be a preacher and a pastor because you do get the last word um, sometimes, right? Right? I mean, don't ever mess with a pastor who has a pulpit right after you. After you've messed with him, because he can get up there and she can get up there and just air it out, right? Um, yeah. So today, in continuing this, I want to attempt. To answer the following question If reconciliation is our ministry, if reconciliation is the hope of the world, here's the question I want us to tackle this morning, if you will. What does it take to be reconciled? What does it take to be reconciled? This morning, I want us to look at a passage, probably a familiar story if you've been in church for any length of time, out of Genesis chapter 33 and it's a story of Jacob and Esau. And I want to just read this passage. We're going to read the chapter. Don't worry, it's only 20 verses, okay? Only 20 verses. I'm going to read the chapter and then I want to go back and I want to hopefully kind of pull out of this passage four specific things that I think are here of what it takes for us to be reconciled. Verse from what we see in this passage of what it took for Esau and Jacob to be reconciled. Okay? So let me do this. I'm gonna read the chapter. And this is what it says here in chapter 33 of Genesis. And it says this Then Jacob raised his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two slave women. He put the slave women and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. He raised his eyes and saw the women and children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the slave women came forward with their children, and they bowed down. And Leah likewise came forward with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came forward with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. Jacob said, no, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then accept my gift from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God. And you have received me favorably. Please accept my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. So he urged him, and he accepted it. Then Esau said, Let's journey on and go, and I will go ahead of you. But he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and herds that are nursing are a matter of concern to me. And if they are driven hard, just one day all the flocks will die." "'Please let my lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure at the pace of the cattle that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children until I come to my lord at Seir.' Then Esau said, "'Please, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me.' But he said, "'What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my lord.' So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Succoth. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, and when he had come to Padam Aram and camped there before the city, he bought the plot of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of his sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. Then he erected there on the altar and called it El Ohele Israel. Yeah, great story, right? Jacob and Esau. Now, if you know anything about the backstory of Jacob and Esau, you know that this could have ended very differently because we know that Jacob and Esau were not on good terms, they were brothers. Uh, Esau was the older brother, Jacob was the younger brother, even though technically they were twins, Esau came out first, and then Jacob second. Esau was the favored son of Abraham, who was their father, because Jacob, or rather Esau was kind of an outdoorsy kind of guy, and he was hairy, he was everything a man that you would picture would be, he was a man's man, right? Jacob was the favorite of Rebekah, his mother, because, well, he stayed at home. He liked to be his mother. He'd probably palm all of hands and love to be in the kitchen and whatever else. You know, all that kind of stuff. Now, let me just say this. There is some dispute, I, I admit, among theologians on whether or not they truly reconciled here. Partly because of Esau, but more than that, partly because of Jacob. Jacob oftentimes gets a bad rap. He is oftentimes perceived as being kind of conniving, scheming, Uh, a person who is always working things out for his benefit. I I disagree with that assessment. I disagree with that assessment. Here's why. I don't think it was him necessarily who was doing all of that on his own volition. But rather, the reality is is that there were family fractions, family frictions, family disagreements that were present, and because of that, he was kind of used in some ways as a way to kind of punish Esau. Let me give you an example. You see, Esau was a man who, although he was a manly man, although he was hairy and he loved to go hunting and all that kind of wonderful stuff, everything that I am not, by the way, okay? All of that kind of... You don't have to shake your heads in agreement. Um, it, you know, he was, he was rash. He was emotional. He made decisions on the fly, right? Here's what really in particular got his mother Rebecca very angry is that he went off and he married some women from the Canaanites and brought them in as his wives and she, Rebecca couldn't stand those women. They were not to be a part of their family at all. She hated it that he did this. And so in a way to kind of kind of resolve this or get back is that she had determined in her heart that Esau will not get the blessing that an older son would typically be entitled to. And so she's the one who schemed with the whole plan to have Jacob dress up like Esau. She's the one who prepared the meal because remember at this time Abraham couldn't see, or not Abraham, Isaac couldn't see very well. He was older in age. And so she's the one who planned all of this to deceive her own husband so that in response, Isaac would bless Jacob and not Esau. She's the one who did it. She's the one who did it. Jacob went along with it. Yes, but why wouldn't you? Mom says, Mom, you do. Right? If Mama says it, you do it. And he's a mama's boy. Of course he was going to do it. And and so that's kind of what happened here. And not only that, in response, you know what Esau did when after he realized his blessing was taken away from him? You know what he did? He said, oh, you don't like the fact I married these Canaanite women? Well, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to go marry more of them. And that's what he did. He went out and did it even more. Right? And so we oftentimes looked at when finally you know, Jacob fled to his homeland and stayed with Laban, uh, his uncle, for, you know, quite a while there, that finally when Laban takes advantage of him, because remember, you know, Jacob wanted to marry Rachel. He liked Rachel, loved Rachel, thought she was beautiful, but instead ends up first marrying Leah, the older sister, who was not as beautiful. In fact, um, you know, even tells us in scripture that she had some sort of disease, some sort of eye issue, whatever else like that. Some of us are tempted to think, oh, Jacob got what he, what he deserved. He got deceived just as much as he deceived his own brother. I disagree with that. You wanted, remember, 10% of evangelicals wanted shorter sermons. 90% wanted longer ones. Just remember that, okay? Um. Because here's the thing, is that in that culture, here's what I think what Laban was doing, is that he realized his oldest daughter, whom he loved very much, was never going to be married because she had a physical abnormality, was disabled in some way, and that was not very highly prized. And so as a father, I believe that he would want his daughter to be taken care of. And what better way to ensure that she would be taken care of than be married to someone in in their own family who would take care of her? And that's what happened. It's Jacob's fault for not pulling up the veil on their wedding night to say, Are you Leah or are you Rachel? Before you consummate the marriage. <laughs> there was no electricity in those days either. <laughs> okay. I mean, seriously, who doesn't make sure? Are you my wife? <laughs> Honestly, I mean... So I say all that to say, listen, Jacob gets a bad rap to some degree. He's not completely innocent, but he's not completely guilty either of all of this, okay? That being said, there was a falling out clearly between these two brothers. When Jacob got the blessing that was due to Esau, Esau, of course, rightly so, but also just part of his personality as being a really rash, fly-off-the-handle, emotionally kind of oriented kind of guy you know, promised, made a commitment almost almost to a vow to say, I will kill you, Jacob. And by the way, Esau knew weaponry. Esau knew how to hunt. He knew all that stuff. Jacob probably didn't know those things very well. and He probably thought, he's going to do it. He's going to kill me. So he flees. All that to say is that in this encounter in chapter 33, we find some beautiful things about What has happened here and before they actually meet perhaps one of the most famous passages that we find in the Old Testament Is the fact that when Jacob realizes that he's journeying back after he left his uncle With now rebecca and Leah, or rachel and Leah, with him that all of a sudden now He realizes he is gonna have to once again meet his brother esau and you know what happens is the most famous, in my opinion, one of the most famous stories in all of the Old Testament is that he wrestles with God for the entire night. He wrestles with him. And that's where he begins to have the new name Israel as a result. It was in the context of him having to meet his brother. I don't know about you, but have you ever been in a situation where you've had a falling out with someone? Maybe it was a, an ex-spouse, and you're going to have to go to that wedding where they're going to be there. And you're dreading it. Or you had a falling out with another relative and you're going to that family reunion and you're dreading it. Like you're up nights trying to figure out how can I avoid this person? How can I, what am I gonna say to this person? How am I going to interact with this person? What is this person gonna say to me? Are we gonna have an argument there? Is it gonna get ugly? Right? Have you had a falling out with a friend? And, and you're going to that high school reunion or some sort of reunion or whatever else, and that person maybe is, is, is going to be there, and you've got to face this person, and you don't know what to say, and maybe, and let me just put this in your mind, you're the one who caused the, the, the hurt. You're the one who caused the pain, and now you've got to face this person that you hurt. This is in some ways what Jacob was wrestling with. This wrestling with God was not only physical, but I also believe it was mental and spiritual as well. I mean, he was really wrestling the whole night, what am I going to say? How is he going to respond? What's this going to be like? Am I going to be killed? Is he still angry with me? All of these thoughts were going through his head. He did not know what it was going to happen. But nonetheless, what we see from, verse, from chapter 33 is that in the end, it was a very different story. And from here, I think we can learn some things about what it takes to reconcile. And here's the first thing. It takes really hard Let me say that again. What it takes to reconcile? It takes really hard work. If Jacob wrestled with God all night long prior to seeing his brother, wrestling, anguishing, you know, fretting over what was going to happen, trust me, and he's going to have to do it, it takes really hard work. There are very few people who want to do this particularly if we're the ones who hurt others. Very few people want to do this. We make excuses. Oh, I've got that thing. Oh, let me just find some fault in them that I can use against them for the reason why I hurt them. We anguish over this if we have to face them and we know we need to reconcile with them. And it is just absolutely hard. It is absolutely hard. Let me just say this. Here at Summit Ridge, this process that we have been through for the past, it seems like forever, right? At least to me it does. By the way, you've only seen the back end of it, for many of you here, the the lay elders and the pastors who have been involved in this, this has been two plus years. Two plus years. COVID interrupted a lot of this, I grant you that, but that didn't stop us. I mean, seriously, we... We wrestled with whether or not we should go through this process of listening sessions. We wrestled with whether or not we should go through this process of actually being able to meet with people individually. We wrestled with, what is this going to do? Is this going to open up old wounds? Is this going to hurt people even more? Is those, you know, we read books. We talked with other people outside of this church, but with our denomination for advice and and guidance. We prayed about this. We had discussions amongst even ourselves. Even amongst ourselves, we disagreed with each other. Oh, I don't think we should do this. Oh, I think we should do this. Oh, I mean, hard, hard conversations before we even began the process of actually doing listening sessions and all of this kind of stuff. Why? Because reconciling is really, really hard work. It takes, and by the way, I'll just clue you in. If you ever get asked to be a lay elder, first of all, I hope you consider it a privilege, but also, secondly, I hope you consider and understand this. Our meetings, as much as we try, oh, today we're going to meet for an hour and be done. That's about three hours. I kid you not. We try so hard. But you know why it takes so long? Because reconciliation is really hard work. It's really hard work. Hours and hours and hours of talking, of praying, of looking at the Scriptures, of weighing the pros and cons, of trying to get us to wait this out, of saying, should we or should we not do this? And then finally, going into listening sessions. And those were phenomenal. And I loved the ones that I was a part of, because chances are I was in them, you had nothing bad to say. <laughs> but there were, and I. God bless our, our lay elders and our pastors, they spent more time in listening sessions than even I did. Hours of just listening to people. Not defending, not justifying, not, not even in many ways explaining, just listening to you all. Dump on us. Share with us. And that's a beautiful thing that is hard work i would imagine there were some times that some of our lay elders and pastors were sitting with their hands under their legs just like "Mm, i want to i want to share i gotta i gotta speak you know you can't because that's not the agenda it's hard work it's hard work it was hard for Jacob, it's hard for us, it's really, and we wrestled, we wrestled. Do you know what I find fascinating about Israel, that name Israel? Sometimes, depending on how you read and define that name that is maybe defined in your Bibles or elsewhere, is it like one who wrestles with God, right? That, that's, that's a good one, I, but it's more than that. Do you know what that word in, in many ways means? It's being triumphant with God. We wrestle, and then in the end, we can only do this in the hopes that God will be triumphant in the end, and we will succeed, because God succeeds. It's really, really hard work. And that's why not everybody will do it. Even Christians, by the way. Even churches, by the way. I, I was mentioning this to some pastors that I meet with periodically and i and and it was my turn to present so i presented what our church was going through at the time and doing listening sessions and all that kind of stuff and boy some of the pastors thought oh my gosh dan that whew. um boy that's got to be a downer at your church i mean boy you know boy you, did you have to i mean like the impression was that's the only thing we've done here is those things and we've done nothing else no that's not true but it's just like, oh, I don't know. I think that would stop our mission. That would stop everything if we did something like that. And I'm thinking, no, 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 no. You probably need to do it then. <laughs> you know? It's not just about mission and vision, it's about relationships ultimately. It's what it's about, brothers and sisters. Church, Christianity, the gospel message isn't about mission and vision, it's about relationships. It's about relationships. That's what it's all about. And relationships are a lot of work. Are a lot of work. If God didn't orient all of us, and specifically me, to be made for relations with the other, I tell you what, I'd run out in the middle of the woods, build a shack, and live there the rest of my life. Less drama. Less complications. Right? It's just hard. It's really, really hard. Here's the second thing of what it takes to reconcile. It takes time. You know how many years it was between the falling out of Esau and Jacob before they reconciled? It was twenty years. It's twenty years. It was twenty years from their falling out to when they finally reconciled. It took 20 years. Wow, that is a long time. And it depends because on the hurt, it depends on the posture of those involved processing of the hurt. It all takes time. It all takes time. I realize this. When we have hurt relationships, we have people who are hurt. Man, I I have the same desire that immediately we want want to kiss and make up. Right? Like our parents did that if you had parents and you had siblings, right? And you got into a fight with another. All right, kiss and make up. Shake hands. Make good on this. Okay, you may be forcing it. It doesn't solve it. They're right back arguing over the same thing again, right? I mean, it's just, it's just hard. But not only that, it takes time. You cannot force reconciliation. You and I cannot force it. We cannot will it. We cannot wish it. It takes time. The question is this, how much time? As long as it's needed. As long as it's needed. I don't know. I do not know. I love what Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says this. and, And this is even all about the coming of Jesus. And listen to what Paul writes. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Why was the time when Jesus came the time when Jesus came? I don't know, but I know this. It was the right time. Why didn't he come right after the fall? in the garden why didn't jesus just show up and say i'm here to die let's get this over with let's clean the slate let's start all over i don't know we went thousands of years before jesus finally showed up thousands upon thousands from the fall that happened in the garden to when jesus finally shows up i mean why i don't know why but i do know, I do know this it's the right time It was the right time. 2 Peter 3, verse 9 says this, The Lord is not slow about His promise. What's His promise? He's coming back, brothers and sisters. How many of you believe that? How many of you want Him back now? Be careful what you wish for. (laughs) Remember, we first stand before Him before anyone else does. Right? We stand stand before Him. But this is, it's like, Jesus, and and we're so desperate for this, we look for signs when we are not supposed to look for signs. I've shared this before, I'll share it again. Every time, you're like, I love this underwater volcano that happened near, I don't love it. I'm so sorry. Um, Like, oh, I love destruction, and I love tsunamis, and, and, you know, I don't love it. But when those things happen, it's like, oh, Jesus is coming soon. No! In fact, he says, there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be earthquakes. That's not when I'm coming. And we as Christians say, that's when you're coming. And we get disappointed when he doesn't show up. No. Let me read on here. He's not being slow about his promise. That is to come back, as some count slowness. We count it slow. Jesus, it's been 2,000 years. I mean, this is how fast even the disciples when before he even ascended back into heaven, he had been crucified, had come back, and and they said to him, so when are you bringing the kingdom, Jesus? Come on, let's get going. Jesus is like, not for you to know. Okay, don't worry about it. They thought it was going to happen there. Paul, in many ways, and many theologians believe this. I, I have no reason to disagree with this. Many believed, even Paul thought in his own lifetime, Jesus would come back. It didn't happen. What's going on? Well, second Peter, Peter, out of all the people, the most impatient. Right? Come on, Jesus. Let's do it. Right? He says this, but he is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It takes time. It takes time. Theologian Warren Wiersbe says this, God is not in a hurry. He kept Abraham and Sarah waiting 25 years before Isaac was born. And Isaac and Rebekah waited 20 years for Esau and Jacob. Jacob had to wait 14 years to get the bride he really wanted, and then had to serve six more years to build up his flocks so he could be independent a total of 20 years. 22 years passed between Joseph's betrayal by his brothers and the brothers reconciling in Egypt. God is not in a hurry because all his works are done in love. Love is patient, love is kind. Let's be grateful that God takes his time. Why are we doing this now? It seems like the right time. Why didn't we do it earlier? It didn't seem like it was the right time. I'm not God, neither are any of our lay elders or pastors. It just seems like this is the right time. Just this. Years, sometimes, after. It just takes time. It really does. Here's the third thing, what it takes to reconcile. It takes forgiveness and humility. What I love about this chapter of Esau and Jacob reconciling is the fact that Jacob was fretting over how Esau was going to respond, and he already had an idea because his servants came back to him and said, Oh, yeah. We saw Esau, we met with him. He's got 400 men with him, and they're coming to greet you. Let me tell you this. you got 400 men with you. This ain't a party of peace and reconciliation coming to meet you. This all says, red lights, danger, Will Robinson, danger, Will Robinson, I have come to avenge what you have taken from me. That's what that communicates. And Jacob knew it what he didn't know until they finally met was Esau forgave him. Esau forgave him. How? Oh, Esau ran to him, grabbed him. I mean, you could just, could you imagine, just picture this, Jacob frozen. Oh my gosh, my brother's running to me. 400 men behind him. Uh, I don't know what to do, I can't leave, I can't run, I'm just going to... And Nelson grabs him, you can imagine he's just a stick figure as Esau's picking him up, right? Brothers don't shake hands, brothers got a hug, <laughs> right? Just grasping him and giving him this big old hug. Forgiveness! Esau forgave his brother. You mean? Let me just let you in know on a little secret, brothers and sisters. Forgiveness is something you can do without ever having to meet the person who wronged you or hurt you. You can do it right now right here in this place. You can release that burden, that pain and that hurt. And sometimes you got to do it multiple times. Oh yeah. I got to forgive. forgive. Please help me to forgive this person again. That pain comes up. Please help me to forgive that person again. Let me just say what forgiveness does. Forgiveness releases the burden. Forgiveness releases